morning. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming in. Um, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners, please? Yeah. I'm Mark Ledbury. I work here at the University of Sydney in the Art History Department. My uh, job title has a slightly fancy-sounding one. I'm the Power Professor of Art History and the Director of the Power Institute. Wonderful. So we'll be talking a lot about both your research and your work with the uh, Power Institute. Uh, but before I do, I'd just like to acknowledge country. So we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd really like to pay respects to uh, their elders, um, past, present, and emerging. Um, feel free to make an acknowledgement if you Yeah, indeed, we are on Gadigal land, and I would like to add my acknowledgement to the um, elders of the Gadigal people, and also acknowledge that uh, learning, teaching, the transmission of ideas has happened on uh, the traditional lands of the Gadigal people and all over Australia for at least 60,000 years, and uh, acknowledge that we play small role in a much larger history of cultural transmission. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, so you've been working at Sydney University for the past 11 years, if I'm right. That's but right. Uh, you originally started, I mean, you, I think people could tell that you have a British accent, so started out studying at, yeah. uh, I think it was Cambridge and Sussex, right? Yeah, um, that's right. So could you kind of walk us through, yeah. I guess, your career journey? Yeah. So like, how did you start out as an undergrad in yeah. England to a professor in the other side of the world. Yeah, and it's a, a fairly a long and meandering journey. I'll try and yeah. keep it short. But um, <laughs> So when my first passion, the thing that first got me excited in life about sort of uh, uh, intellectual matters was actually languages. So uh, when I was 13, I, I'd always had an interest in uh, speaking other languages. I don't know where it came from, but I was always interested in it. And then when I was 13, I went to France on a, one of these exchanges, which, you know, in those days, but they were terrible. They were sort of psychically awful because every French boy of 13 is like 20 years more sophisticated than every British kid. <laughs> and like you're just, you're mostly there a horrible experience of being like the, you know, the kid who just doesn't get it in France. We're all the, yeah, and, and everyone else yeah. is like super trendy and they go to the beach and you have no idea <laughs> and you're like the most hopeless wingman ever and it's all rubbish. <laughs> but anyway, I went to France and some, some of this uh, sort of exactly experience, but. At the end of this trip, I, st I, I it was kind of a nightmare, really, because I, I suddenly felt really very ill. We were having a big banquet. I was feeling terribly ill. My, my stomach was in a terrible pain. And I'm sorry about this. This is like the uh, the R-rated version of the podcast. But uh, I started to <laughs> vomit everywhere. And I was. it turned out I was. Uh, my appendix was in the process of bursting. And I didn't know it at the time, but I said, you know, I feel so terrible. I need to go to hospital. They didn't find an ambulance, but I was taken to hospital. And I can still remember I was in such pain. And it's one of these, uh, for the old car fans among you, it was an old Citroen DS. Oh, wow. And these things, they levitate upwards. They have a little pressing button and they sort of, they rise up on a sort of a cushion of air. And then you, and then I was sped to hospital in one of these. Anyway, Jesus. I spent two weeks in a, in, a, in a hospital because I thought I was going to be out in three days. I just had appendicitis. Turned out I had a big infection that was all terrible. But anyway, I survived. I was in hospital in France for 14 days. I didn't really speak much French, but I weirdly fell in love with France right then. I I mean, I, I had to speak French. I had to sort of make communication with people. I started to listen to the, you know, the television in the corner of the room. I started to get a sense of that this was a completely other culture than, than the one I grew up in in, uh, in Britain. And that started me on really loving languages. And I started to read a lot. I started to try to learn as many. And I did French and German. And that's what I went to. I got really excited by when I was at school. And I thought I'd go and, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be a translator or something like that, or I was going to go and work in the European Union as, as like a, you know, as a, 
documentary or something. But I just wanted, I knew I wanted to go and to be in other cultures. I realized that like this means that if I learn French, there's 60 million more people I can communicate with than the ones in Britain. I mean, it's a stupid idea if you like, but it, it was a sense of an expanding universe. Anyway, so I went to uni to do uh, French and German, to do modern languages. Mm. While I was at Cambridge, which was a very strange but wonderful and very sort of privileged experience, obviously. But actually, I I was a little uncomfortable, but that's because I was probably just an uncomfortable kind of kid. But I got really into... Um, before I... Sorry, I have to dial back a bit. Before I went to uh, Cambridge, I took a six-month tr- um, uh, work stay in what was then West Berlin. Mm. And that was another transformation. So I had already had the French experience. Then I went to... Germany it was a thing called the live and work in Germany scheme and there may be people who are veterans of this scheme it was amazing it pitched you into these jobs in then West Berlin so this was the in 1986 before the wall came down the West Berlin had its own special uh, circumstances and you had to have special paperwork and all of that but um, I w- uh, most people worked at banks and stuff I worked at a swimming pool it's still there it's called the Zomerbad Prinzenstrasse in uh, Kreuzberg and it um I was a, a basically a toilet cleaner. I mean, I had a slightly more elevated job description than that, but I cleaned the changing rooms, the mirrors, and that was my like introduction to a completely other way of life. Berlin was amazing. It was full of like dropouts from because if you went to Berlin, you did you avoided military service, so you, lots of it was very it was a very sort of progressive and strange and wonderful place in the, in the eighties. Anyway, that got me into German as well, but it also got me into art because it was in Berlin in 86, not really before, that I started to go to the, you know, uh, lots of exhibitions and go to see all the museums that Berlin had at that time because it's all changed now. But the, 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 the sort of museum landscape had been split like Berlin and there were all these um, museums down in a sort of uh, uh, an area of the city called Dahlem and I used to spend a lot of time down there and I got really into uh art just as a kind of um you know as a side interest so when i went to by the time i got to cambridge and i was doing modern languages degree i had this real big burgeoning interest in visual art and Mm. while i was um at cambridge i i sort of went to the classes uh in this very rickety place which was the where art history was taught on uh, a particular avenue in cambridge and I was a sort of passenger in some ways. I never, I didn't take an art history degree, I took a languages degree, but I got more and more interested in art. And then when I left Cambridge, um, I had the best piece of advice in the world ever given to me by a famous Byzantinist called Robin Cormack, who's actually, who is, whose partner is Mary Beard, the great uh, classicist who, and I, they were, I, I, want, I told him this story later and he, he sort of only half remembered it, but I went to their house, which was in Cambridge, on the advice of my tutor, because I really wanted to do art history after mm. I finished. And uh, and I was wondering whether I'd stay in Cambridge, though I wasn't particularly happy there. And my tutor said, go and see uh, Robin Cormack. And Robin Cormack said to me, you need to do everything you can to go to the University of Sussex, where this brilliant American art historian called Thomas Crow has just arrived as professor. You need to study with this person. Whatever you need to do to get there, you should do that. And I sort of hurriedly then made plans to try to go down there. And that that was the best advice I ever had because that was what took me to, after a, another year out, a year out in Paris where I sort of went to, uh, some, you know, so I took a year between undergraduate and PhD and I went back to Paris and I you know, jobbed around teaching English like every single person in the 90s did. And then I um, went back to the University of Sussex uh, to do my PhD and it was 
it is the transformational experience of my sort of intellectual life. It was a wonderful place. Thomas Crowe is a, a remains a friend and and is is still one of the, you know, one of the truly great art historians of our field. I I had a great and privileged uh, three and a half years uh, during. Uh, so was that your PhD? That was my PhD. Yeah. So that and I and I wrote on the relationship between. Um, a group of dramatists and a group of artists because I had language skills so I could I could read really well in French I could read and I had a very literary kind of degree in my my languages mm. degree at the, so I I was used to the literary side but then I was able to work on the relationship between a group of artists and a group of writers and my thesis and the work that I've done subsequently has often been sort of marked by a, a sort of relationship between literature and the visual arts so I wanted to look at who was talking to who how did how did artists actually work with writers? You know, not just sort of on a theoretical level. Ah, oh, this is a, you know, which, which was a lot of the the buzz of the time was let's let's compare things on a on a theoretical level. Can you? What's the semiotics of a of a painting compared to that of a drum? But I was actually much more interested in the biographical and cultural and sort of intellectual links between groups of people. So I worked. Mm. I ended up, long story short, working on a figure who was not very well known, who was called Michel Jean Sedaine, who happened to be a very innovative dramatist and the, the surrogate father figure to a great um, artist, Jacques-Louis David, the great revolutionary artist um, of the, you know, who was, who created the Oath of the Racii and the Brutus and all of those wonderful paintings. But I, I, so I particularly focused on how we might think about the relationship between this dramatist and this artist, but also in the framework of how a drama, uh, how the genres of drama and the genres of, uh, of painting related. So I looked at, you know, new developing forms of theatre, like uh, Diderot's famous sort of uh, new kinds of drama, which wouldn't be tragedy or wouldn't be comedy properly, but would be a kind of third way or a new version of it. And, and then what that meant in terms of painting or what they borrowed from each other. But it all ended up, really as a as a study of how uh, what we might call innovations and uh, and new ideas in one uh, sphere of creation work with others so and i've i've been in that media ever since really um but it was very exciting took me to the archives got me uh, sort of uh i might uh, just ask a follow-up yeah, sorry that's all right yeah. yeah so when you're talking about like the relationship between um theater and art like that's something yeah. i find like very fascinating could you elaborate a bit on that yeah um is it maybe one thing I've wondered about is like the architecture of a theater, like um, because before an audience actually walks into a theater space, like yeah. they see the building, and I yeah. I wonder <laughs> often like if that conditions us to um, interact with what we see on stage in a certain way. Or was your research more about? Yeah. Well, Would you just talk about your research? Yeah. Well, look, yeah. actually, that's a great question, Harry, because mm. the conditions under which one sees theater was was one of the things that actually preoccupied theorists themselves. So uh, it was famous and well known that. At a certain point through the 18th century, spectators were on the stage. I mean, they literally had seats on the stage. So wasn't that like Shakespeare's audience? You could but buy a yeah, seat. Yeah, yeah. Even and, I mean, but I, yeah, the, where, sure. yeah. I, I'm talking about a later period in the mm. French theatre, but it only by only when um, you know you could take the sort of side seated spectators off the stage and place them in front. Could you sort of conceptualize a theatre space that was allowed to to sort of, in a way. Um, create, uh, you know, in, in, in what Diderot felt would be a new sort of, uh, you know, reality effect where you're sort of, you're, 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 I mean, he imagined in the 1750s that one might imagine a salon, uh, you know, a drawing room perfectly reconstructed on stage. Well, if you had spectators on stage, you couldn't do that. So we're, we're talking about the beginning 
of the of the if you like the the theater of um, theatrical illusion that gets broken of course by modernism but we're talking about for you've got to remember that in the 1750s Diderot saying hey let's imagine the theater as we would really imagine an interior in a real house that was a radical step so is it kind of like proto naturalism yeah well like it was it was proto yeah, yeah also something. in fact the, i mean yeah. ev- and people who know theater history really well know that uh, you know uh, that Diderot and and that kind of um, the, the, the what he called the drame, the drama, mm. was at the origin of uh, many subsequent developments of the kind of the nineteenth-century naturalist theatre, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the same time, uh, he was in borrowing in order to do that from from what he, and he explicitly says it in his treatises uh, from genre painting from play, people like Chardin. So he, in one of his famous um, you know uh, theoretical treatises, he says. Let's imagine, uh, you know, this uh, this scene, and this scene is in fact a sort of transcription of a of a painting by an 18th century French painter. So he was using interior genre painting as a way of imagining what the theatre might look like. And on the other hand, so in other words, he's using painting to base his stage aesthetic on. But on the other hand, um, painters were constantly being referred to tragedy and other models you know oh how do you make a history painting work well imagine uh, the great tra- you know tragic scene in Corneille perhaps you can adapt that so in other words there's this kind of constant back and forth between theatre and the visual arts and I was really interested in that but I wanted to know how did it happen it didn't you know I think we often imagine things happen in some kind of amazing theoretical intellectual uh, space where people just transmit ideas no it happens because people work together in theatre so I looked at things like François Boucher, the great um, uh, earlier painter, François Boucher, who uh, everyone knows as a kind of great Rococo painter of, you know, uh, naughty nymphs and stuff. But in fact, he, in the sem- from, the sem- from early in his career, he worked with theatrical people. He designed new looks for the opera and for the theatre. He was... You, so you could trace how it happened, how it happened that a new aesthetic comes. It's because artists and writers get together it's because entrepreneurs bring them together and say hey i'll tell you what we've got to make the decor for this how's it going to happen so i became very interested in that and it, right from my th- uh, thesis which became uh, my first book you can trace how i was always fascinated by you know the glue the the the, the networks the people that make these ideas cross so is it like the act of decision making, or like the decision making yeah. of this director? To yeah, design or, a set in yeah, this or way? it's not just a. Di- it could be. It could be the producer of what we would now call the producer, or the entrepreneur who sort of mm. owns the stage, who says, "I'd like to employ that writer because I tell you what, I saw this thing that they did. It was brilliant. It's mm. much more like. It's like a it, business almost, but yes, some, but more like the, the business of a very complex and very ambitious, uh, sort of peak TV TV thing where you actually have to get a great you know, director of photography, you have to get a great set of actors, you have to have people who all believe in the same project. And you make them do things or you bring them together and see what happens. I think that that is a really interesting history of innovation transfer. It's, and and what, for me, I really needed to see the flesh and blood behind the ideas because I had inherited from, you know, previous generations of scholarship, you know, uh, a theoretical idea. Mm. Oh yes, there's this thing called the tableau, and it. Everyone in the 18th century suddenly starts not to do sort of, uh, you know, uh, histrionics, but they start to do a sort of visual-based theatre. But I wanted to know, well, how did that happen then, and how did that get integrated into real 
paintings and real theater situations and so that was you know to, i've made a long story even longer so apologies for that but that was my that the excitement for me was the fact that i in my phd in you know in the mm. 1990s i was still able to uncover circles that had not been properly looked at so michel jean Sedin, people knew him there were 19th century and early 20th century biographies but no one had really examined his uh, relationship with uh, Jacques-Louis David very well, except, you know, in a couple of theoretical texts earlier. No one really had gone into his complex career as uh, Secretary of the Architectural Academy and what that might have brought. No one had... And I had the immense good fortune of being able to sort of... Inter uh, we're talking pre-digital age here, mm. of going and visiting archives, of sifting through old bundles of papers, of reading 18th century letters, some awful microfilms as well, but... Um, and being able to sort of put some, you know, to, 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 to discover new aspects of a circle. And that has stayed with me ever since. Though the things I did for that PhD, the archival work, the sense of reconstructing networks and circles, that is still part mm. of what I do 30 years mm. later. So. I, I was going to ask two follow-ups. One is when you're talking about... Um, kind of this mutual process of adaptation where like yeah. a theatre maker will be inspired by an artwork and artwork will be inspired yeah. by a piece of theatre. Um, could you maybe talk about like um, what is lost or changed in mm. that transition between the two forms? Because to me, they seem like just like wildly different. Like I imagine in, maybe, I mean, I maybe you'll disagree with this, but like if you were adapting, say, or like if you were inspired by an artwork and then putting it into theatre, I think in theatre, like you have a greater ability maybe to shape an audience's mind or to provide like a more didactic story where it's like yeah. this is the way you ought to live yeah could I you mean, like elaborate on that a little bit well huh. was that am i being reductive no i mean you're stating in some ways something that is quite um you know one obvious thing is that and it's yeah. one of the things that theorists talked about is, is that you know what a theater what a piece of theater allows to happen is mm. uh the evol the evolving it, it has the dimension of time right mm. so it, mm. so it starts at a certain place and then in three or five acts it gets to another place and there is an arc and there is a, an agnosis or whatever whatever the and tragic ingredients are yeah. you know in a painting you know and it was something that was thought about greatly well how do you encapsulate that you know are, are you, how crudely do you try and stage the unfolding time or do you need to do something different which is to sort of boil down what is the sort of tragic essence of a, a situation into a pregnant moment a moment that can sum up and resonate out so i mean mm. if you look at uh you know um great uh, you know gr what i consider great tragic paintings and would have been written about very eloquently by uh, bob herbert and tom crow but the the brutus uh, david's brutus mm. i mean that feat that is not the whole story of the fact that you know the founder of the roman republic had to w uh, both condemn his own sons to death watch their execution and sort of deal with the family consequences of that it decide um, david decided that he would choose a moment after the death the the, the execution and the uh, of the of the sons and the moment when their bodies are brought back to the family because he can allude to the previous punishment and the violence by having the the, the bodies being brought you can see the body you can see Brutus in a kind of tense shadow in the corner of the painting and then you see this empty chair in the center of the painting and a and the sort of uh, the the mother uh, sheltering uh, 
uh, other members of the family from from the sort of horror of it. And then you see a servant in the corner in a veiled way. And all of that is to try to give you a sense of the understanding of the awfulness of the whole story. But in one series of mini moments or mm. one freeze across across. A, and that that's you have to adapt. Painters knew that they couldn't just sort of show someone histrionically acting out a scene. They knew mm. that they had to use the the vocabulary and the expressive possibilities open to them using space, using recession, using shadow, using uh, facial expression and gesture in a way that would conjure up the sort of impact of a tragic scene. Whereas they could never, like if you just show a scene, you know, act one, scene two of, uh, you know, yeah. in a way, uh, that's where someone like the great project of almost the same time uh, Boydell's Shakespeare Gallery, where he tried to get all the great artists of Britain of the time, you know, the Fuseleys and the uh, and co, to create paintings and have a gallery of Shakespearean painting. But the trouble right. is, it was almost too literal. You had scenes right. from Midsummer Night's Dream, or and some of them were wonderful. But the ones mm. that were wonderful were the ones that departed or boiled down or or found a way of of not just being a painting after Shakespeare, but a version or a transliteration. Whereas, you know, if, if you take it literally, you see a lot of things that leave you cold, that don't, that seem to be, oh, well, you know, I just saw this, this is like just what, you know, taking a clip of a stage mm. thing. And it mm. doesn't have the same resonance. So in a way, the 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 really interesting thing is not, you know, oh, they uh, they took their inspiration from this play, but what did they do with it? How did they mm. make that so impactful in, and so resonant for a, for a, an audience which is not does not view, does not give the same time and attention to the individual painting as would give, you know, a, a theatre is an occasion. You go to the occasion and you say, right, I'm going to see Chekhov or I'm going to see this, I'm going to see King Lear. Mm. And you know what you're in for, you... You know, you're invited in many ways to suspend for a long period of time your uh, your other activities and become plunged into this. A painter in an exhibition, imagine the public art exhibitions of the 18th century. There's, oh, there's m several hundred objects, paintings and uh, some engravings and sculptures in the room. So you've got, you are, you've got rows yeah. and rows. You have to grab attention and you have to somehow isolate someone before and get them into the meditative mood all just with in 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 on two in two dimensions on a flat plane you know uh, with no sound and no mm. movement and so a painter is really challenged to do that it is a real and you know david and and the, the most successful of painters you know find pictorial means to convey the sort of intensity of you know a tragic uh, occurrence or, or, or a story of you know of of, of you know uh, uh myth uh, or that 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 you know might over in a narrative take you know 100 pages mm. but they have to boil it down to uh, a a sort of a, a a moment that so compels you that you are drawn in to the to the sight of the painting as as a as a you know and and, and you can you could find yourself you know, enthralled, and it's so mm. difficult to do that only a few painters ever pull it off. I mean, in a way, uh, the adaptation of what stories, yeah, into or, a but but and, and that's where my interest in really in history painting, which is my other great yeah, interest sure. in my research career, is about because it is such a difficult task. It, yeah. it, it is, you know, every condition, of, I mean, let's 
uh, for theatre historians will forgive me for a moment, but but if you if you uh, go to, to you know down to the Sydney Theatre Company or whatever, and you you're already being set up by there are lots of occasion cues, right? You know, you it's it's an it's an evening performance. You are taken into a space. You um, you sit in the dark. People are, people are and and you are you the the lighting. Everything is designed for you to focus on mm. this extraordinary thing that's happening uh, in front of you. In the, an exhibition, you come off the street. You you are tired. You're standing up. You're looking around at hundreds of different objects. You're what has saturated. What by. you're saturated, yeah. but 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 you're also distracted. You're not focused. There are every picture is right next to another one. You are not being given three. Pe- theatre performances simultaneously you are focused on one anyway so on on one object and then how are you going to hold the attention what's the average attention span for people in front of a of painting uh we we unfortunately we didn't do those experiments in the 18th century the ones they do now you know sometimes they say it's between a minute and a half and two minutes sometimes they oh, say it's less than that honest. yeah most most of them come out at 48 seconds or something like that this is what people spend in front of a so you know in a sense a pe- history but painting that conveys narrative has so many uh, sort of obstacles to climb mm. to, to be a success to be a success there has to be so much that goes right for a painting that uh, that uh, and and you know I've been fascinated for the by the long history of history painting how mm. how painters strive for that and so often fail we'll, we'll be getting back yeah, to yeah. your stuff on history painting um, not your stuff your research on history <laughs> painting um, but and I'd like to talk about your work with the Parents Institute, yeah. which is really interesting. So before we kind of like move yeah. on to that, there was kind of like one just yeah. like last follow up I had, which is um, you, you seem like immensely drawn to art history and art yeah. kind of like around maybe like late towards your undergrad years. Yeah. Um, I guess. Do, do you know wh- why do you what drew you? towards looking at art and art history do you think like you can't sometimes i wonder if you can like psychoanalyze your own likes or dislikes <laughs> like maybe you can't but do, do, was there do you think there's any kind of like compelling explanation or do okay. you think it's just like a love i, yeah. I, I love is probably the wrong word I, right. I felt that what visual art was often doing to me and this you know i can say that there were experiences that weren't about you know 18th century french painting i didn't always think that i would work on you know history painting or whatever some of the biggest, mm. you know, I had revelations in, the, there's a small museum in Berlin called the Brücke Museum, which is dedicated to an early expressionist uh, movement in, uh, you know, in the you know, Karl Schmidt, Rotluf and these other artists. And I became fascinated by how they envisaged the human, how they envisaged uh, landscape. I became, these, these, it was more that I, I wanted to know more about w- how the world was being visually recreated. I I've always had a love of literature. I've I've read a lot. My uh, my mother was an English teacher, um, but my art did something else to me. It sort of wanted to suck me in in some ways. And I you know I another another painting that I've always loved was uh, another one I saw in Berlin was um, Barnett Newman's Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue. I think it's number four. That's in the Neue National Gallery and. It had only just been sort of put on display in the uh, mid '80s when I saw it in '86, and I was just and this is a very this is the last this is nowhere near a, in some ways a you know a figurative painting. It's it's blocks of primary color in in rectangular and stripe. Right. You know it's 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 a very famous series that he did, but I that asked made me ask questions like what on earth is it we're doing when we're 
looking at the artwork what's what's its scale and scope what why why does this have an effect on me and i think that question and the question of why artists make art and why you know creative communities exist that that is so you know the Brücke museum was about a community of artists a group mm. uh you know there's another group in munich the blauer heite group I, I i was fascinated by groups and how they're dynamic what what it takes to make new things happen in the arts and i think that propelled me i think i uh you know um I became you know deeply fascinated by the 18th century in the course of my phd because i was working with you know one of the great historians of 18th century art and culture but also because i loved the adventure of all of the new texts and the new and exciting forms of learning that that were being uh you know talked about in the streets this was the beginning of the public art exhibition as we understand it you know the first time you sort of let the public in and mm. that's the beginning of art criticism because people are starting to write uh, rather than connoisseurs people are writing these pamphlets about the art some of them are you know absolutely scurrilous so kind of and yeah it, yeah and you know some yeah. of them are just they're satire they they pretend that you know they're an eight-year-old girl and they're wandering through and they can't believe what they're seeing and you know i mean this this is really some of it's very funny some of it's kind of totally dull but some of it's really funny most of it published anonymously to evade various forms of censorship but what you what i felt there was this kind of the energy and excitement of new encounters with the artwork mm. so that that you know i but you know when you say psychoanalysis i mean i think all of our uh intellectual lives are bound up in our psychic lives but we you know you you, you can't, can't ask me about it yeah. you may have to ask whatever therapist this has the it's, misfortune to well, do we've actually with us. called in your therapist no yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's right no i um, mean the the fact is that i think that if it were clear to us what what motivated us i think you know um uh, uh you know life would be both more transparent and more dull but we don't really know it's a bit but, mysterious I but think. what is really interesting is that artists supplied a kind of energy that i had that, that almost like it put some vaults in me that mm. have never been lost i feel like i still go i am you know a much older person now and i still go to exhibitions and i still get the sort of spark of oh my god mm. this is really interesting i want to know more so talking about your work at the sydney university so yeah. you're a professor of art history but yeah. you're also the director of the power institute yeah, that's right um, i think some listeners might not know what the power institute is. so yeah. could you walk us through a bit about um what is it and like what you do and yep. kind of your passion for that yeah okay so <clears throat> the power institute is um uh, around uh, um you know um, 60 years old now it was it was created by the bequest of an artist called john power who was a sydney university medicine graduate who uh started in uh, a practice as a surgeon in europe before the first world war he's an australian and he uh, and uh, did medical service in the First World War, after which he abandoned his medical career and uh, pursued his goal of becoming an artist. Um, a very strange and, and quite um, interesting career change. He then, through a, he lived in Europe essentially for the rest of his life, um, uh, between London and Brussels and Paris. He died uh, in what he thought would be, he, he left Paris at the outbreak of the um, Second World War, went to live in Jersey, which he felt would be safe, but of course was uh, um, uh, occupied by the Nazis um, as part of their occupation of France. And he uh, died in occupied Jersey in 1941. Uh, unbeknownst to anyone, 
he had made a will in 1939 when he could see, you know, the way Europe was going. He left a will which, after the death of his wife, would leave a substantial sum uh, to the University of Sydney if it would, in order to create teaching, art collections and ideas around art. He said, I want to, I want people to in Australia to to have an access to the great ideas in art that he imagined would always come from Europe. But, it, you know, he said, you know, they, so keep Australia in touch with the latest ideas in the visual arts. Mm. The, the, the will was all about that. And that meant, right, what do you do? 62, they didn't really know what to do with it. They suddenly had all this money in um, that came in the form of, uh, I think, stock in MLC in an insurance company because Power's father had become rich by being the medical orderly and doctor, chief doctor to this insurance company and so anyway long story short the university decided to uh, create the power institute and the foundation that established both teaching of art history at sydney which had not been taught there was only really one uh department of art history in australia at the time and that was in melbourne uni um uh, it also began the collecting of art uh and creating something called the power collection so literally um Early power professors and curators went out and bought art at, uh, at documenters and in galleries uh, in Europe across the really from the from the late 60s all the way through to the um, late 80s. And the other great project was to try to have somewhere to display this. And this is something that evolved in finally into what's known as the MCA. If you walk into the MCA on the key, the Museum of Contemporary, Contemporary Art, yeah. if you walk in, before you go up the steps, there's a little plaque and it says this gallery was founded as the Power Gallery of Contemporary Art. And in, so in a way, Powers, one of Power's legacies was the seeding of the MCA. It's a complicated story, which I won't go into now, but but it is nevertheless, a, a subs so it had a substantial impact, the Powers bequest. And the other part of what he wanted was the ideas frame. And the Power Institute, as exists currently, is really the engagement and uh, public facing arm of art history uh, in, in the sense that our we run a program of talks uh, um, symposia research projects the results of which we always give away free to the public so it's not something that only university students can of course it's open to all students as well but it's actually all our lectures are public they're always free um, mm. the things we do we also publish books so we try to get books out about um, Australian art and ideas as a long history of publishing uh, key ideas texts as well as um, uh, illuminating the work of contemporary artists um, and the light and darkness catalogue for example of the current show that's up of the power collection works is a power publication but we've published on um, uh, you know we've published text on um, uh, contemporary Australian artists we've published in the past famous translations of theoretical texts that pertain to the arts and so that's, and so that's about meeting the public, not just the student audience. And mm -hmm. that's what part of Power's mission, to go out there and tell the world why art matters, um, mm -hmm. you know, why we should care about the visual arts at all. And I, that really is a reason why I came to Australia in the first place, because without, I think I would not have taken, you know, it's, love, it's wonderful and very prestigious and everything to have a professorship, but, you know, we were comfortably ensconced in the United States and... But the attraction for me was that my this job at Power was both I could teach and research and get very involved in the normal life of a professor in a department, but the Power Institute gave me the chance to also have great fun planning ways in which we could bring ideas to the to a wider public audience and think about mm. engagement. Because if you think about it, 
universities need to speak to a general public audience more than they perhaps do. We're very proud of a, you know, I'm, you know, I love my archival research. I like, you know, finding new, but that is a very small part of the big public discourse on art. Mm. I mean, and not everyone's going to be interested in it. Whereas if you have a compelling case to make about why people should be engaged with the visual arts, that its effect, it, it's sort of, it's philosophical, even if it's, you know, for everything from, why? Well, because it's about fundamental human strivings. And, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, from, from, from the complexity now, the very great complexity that we're now finding in, uh, in uh, Upper Paleolithic and other forms of art uh, made in caves and, and in rock shelters all over this land and many mm -hmm. others. But also, you know, the, the stakes of art in terms of one's health, uh, psychic health, where, how it relates to... I mean, I, I, I sometimes joke, you know, Art is often about sex and death, and you know, name me two more important, um, you know, <laughs> things about the, in life than that. But th I'm only slightly flippant. Art is not froth and like something you put on your wall if you have a lot of money, like decorative. It, it, it's not just a decoration for rich people's houses. It's actually in in making it, in seeing it, in viewing it. It is often very close to centres of community understandings, knowledge. It's it's a big deal. So if I just stay in my little shell and talk to the you know the fifty other people who, you know, know about a, a certain sort of obscure corner of eighteenth century art, I feel like I'm failing to communicate why art really should have a place in every other culture and every person's understanding. That's mm. what power allows us to do in various ways. We we won't always do it brilliantly. We won't always succeed, but we try our best to broaden the conversation. And then. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating organisation because I was researching it for this interview and it sounds like a wonderful, um, yeah, wonderful organisation. And um, it's been really helped by the creation of the Chow Chuck Museum, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, because um, would you mind like talking a bit well, about of course. what you've been doing with Chow Chuck? So although yeah. uh, Power, the Power Institute as currently constituted can't say that, you know, it doesn't belong to us, we don't even have, uh, you know, any special affiliation with it. But I will have to say that when I first came to Sydney in 2011, a, mu a new museum on campus was very far from what we considered to be possible. Yeah. And over the course of a few years, some of us, and it involved uh, um, many people across the university in it, who cared about sort of the arts and culture, who had um, cust custodianship of the university's collections. But we were all aware that we had these disparate and inadequate spaces. Okay, the the Nicholson Museum was nicely enough housed and people were f nice and fond of going into the slightly dungeon-like space that it contained. But nobody was perfectly happy with what... And certainly we knew we had rich collections and uh, a, 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 a real pent-up demand to, to see and be with these collections that we couldn't address. And the idea for a, a whole-of-collections museum that would address the richness of everything that University of Sydney has in its collections, but also enable interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary collaboration, real student engagement with objects, all of these things. These became, you know, more and more pressing for a whole group of us. And I was I, very much a passionate advocate of this museum space. And everyone, you know, because I am a, a fairly loquacious person, I often discussed it with people. But essentially, um, uh, we sort of, kept going and the university became more and more interested especially if, if we were able to attract some outside funding that happened 
And miraculously, the Chow Chat Wing was born of, you know, very much on the plan of a whole of collections museum where art, science and natural history, antiquities would all be visible and even minglable within a space. Of course, there are these separate sections, but but also that we would have object-based learning and other teaching opportunities. So the museum for so it's me... Vital for teaching, yeah, it's, it's vital not just gazing. for showing stuff, yeah. but for actually getting students to interact with objects, working with them. And I don't just mean art historians, though, of course, I have a particular interest in making sure art historians get to things. I mean, the business school, uh, science, the medical school, all of them are beginning to use object-based techniques now. And it's great. It's wonderful to see. But it's also a great feat to have delivered a, a building of... Uh, at modest price of a certain kind of uh, architectural class uh, exploiting the space brilliantly and it works and to me uh, the 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 the, M the MCA was the great sort of fantasy project in some ways of the power like let's have a m contemporary art museum uh, right in the center of town it's a brilliant idea and the MCA has become a great success Perhaps it's enormous. It's wonderful, and it yeah. is a major cultural thing. We seeded that, but we can't really take credit for its success because, really, Lizanne McGregor's direction in the last twenty years has really seen it bloom into the MCA it is everyone knows now. Uh, and we, and of course, everyone here, we we need it to succeed because the art world needs to be uh, sort of united. But we, but I, I, I would couldn't put my hand on my heart and say that was all due to power. It wasn't. It's really been the brainchild of other forces. But the Chow Chat Wing is a real university achievement. It's, it's great thinking. Lots of people working together, using outside philanthropy, but also a lot of commitment from the university to really caring about it. So, to me, that's what makes me happy. And also, as my students will know, who, uh, who take Why Art Matters, it's also where I base one of the core bits of teaching that we do in art history now can i i do have to ask a question yeah. and i know you want the architect yeah. on the side yeah but why does it look like a concrete block oh i don't know you know because like i get you like, and i, I get will never agree sounds great and i'm sounds great but i'm like it's a cube <laughs> of concrete well like okay <laughs> like was it right in the middle of a park no but like, it, I isn't, can concede, it isn't i can see to all of like its interior value but its exterior value i'm just like well i actually think and you would have to ask the director of the museum and the architects in fact i was talking with one of the architects of the site last night and they're quite proud of it because actually the although of course a concrete is a a major element in its its design first of all uh, re remember um, that there was a big uh, concern that it would w the trees would have to go from mm. the site. It it exists within the trees, so it's unlike the very brutal sitting spot of the fissure, uh, which really sort of dominates its landscape on the of, of other side of that slope. If you think about Fisher's implantation, the Fisher Library, I mean, mm. it is much more discreetly um, tucked into the slope of the of the um, uh, of the. Um, uh, the rise up to the um, to the quad, I think. It uses space really elegantly, and I think even its slightly floating aspects, I don't think it is a heavy building. I, I mean, look, maybe I like concrete more than others. I had the great uh, good fortune of seeing the development of two wonderful projects that use concrete by Tadao Ando at the Clark, and so I, I'm, I don't really object to, to the material of it. Uh, obviously, it's a contrast with the sandstone. I think it has respectful, discrete volumes. I think it uses, it doesn't, you know, bludgeon you. It's not brutal. Like, I mean, just check out 
some of the buildings over the um, you know city road other side of the campus from I mean some of the engineering buildings and all I mean those are brutal and uh, you know I mean some people may love them but you know I I think the Chow Chat Wing will become to be seen as one of the more distinguished uh, buildings on the university campus and I I don't but I can understand that concrete off putting but that's because you know maybe we have sandstone brain when it comes to university campuses we I we can't imagine anything beyond like the oxford quad but you know go to uts and see what kinds of things they're in reimagining uh, the university buildings to be I, I i feel like you know and even the fisher was a heroic building really and uh, certainly the chemistry building uh which now looks a little bit you know uh, shabby but you've got to you've got to see that these are attempts to create a different kind of aesthetic and I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, you know, people will have their own opinion about the Chow Chak. For me, uh, the fact of his existence is perhaps you know the most important thing, rather than how, how, picking over the design niceties. But AJC will, you know, take you on an architectural tour and convince you. I'm quite sure. So maybe you and the okay. skeptics should take that tour. Maybe yeah. Well, I probably am getting fixated upon it, but I just sort of like. I don't know. I think I am just enamored with the quad still, even after four years of being. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so I mean, the quad is visited <laughs> by people who will never otherwise come to the university. It is a tourist yeah. attraction of its own. And the quad itself was heroic. I always think of it because actually in the 1850s, when they were building the first bits of the quad, the Great Hall and the first sections, it was almost like uh, um, what in the old British Gothic we used to call the Sham Castle, the it, there wasn't really a university yet, mm. but it was a, if you build it, they will come because there was this pronouncement. The, the, the people that believed in the University of Sydney, the vision of it, built the buildings before the, you know, because things were the, such a university as there was, was developing down at well, one of the, um, you know, where Sydney Grammar School is now. The, the move happened after the building. So that is a heroic statement. So it's, you know, 50 years into the colony's life or whatever. And people are saying, intellectual life matters so what are we going to do we're going to build a castle on a hill right you know one of the highest grounds in the city and we're going to say this matters like education matters we are we're going and so if you look at those early pictures with the Parramatta road going there and this sort of giant like structure but yeah, yeah well Gros farm was what it was built on but it's the height it's the height of the the land and using that height to plant a big sort of castle or tower-like structure to me that that must have seemed really weird in the context of the early colony, but it was it was a statement. Because it's meant to look ancient. It's yeah, but or but it's also old. a statement of yeah. solidity and importance and continuing traditions, but intellectual traditions. It's about a university. It wasn't a hospital. It wasn't a barracks. It wasn't a, a you know a, a place of industry or a farm uh, celebrate. It was about the intellectual life that the colony should have. So it was a building built ahead of the actual creation of the. Uh, of the you know the run of the mill university business which then transferred up there it was a it was a gamble on the importance of intellectual life within the colony and that to me makes it a heroic building uh, you know built in a obviously imitative neo-gothic style but the it's actually much less important that that what its style it was but the, the its scale and its ambition is what matters and that it's enormous yeah i mean it, it's and, still a very large yeah well obviously yeah. they built other bits of it yeah, later sure. and sort of but to me that's a story of it the reason why that matters is because we at universities have to be absolutely 
on the front foot and proud of what it means to be a university, a place of intellectual development, of innovation and expertise and intellectual traditions that matter deeply. They, I, don't, I don't think there's any argument that uh, as we are approaching the 21st century, uh, we're approaching the 21st century, as we're deep into the <laughs> 21st century now, we, we understand how vital intellectual life will be over the next centuries. If we're going to have any life at all, it's going to be led by intellectual and other pursuits. We're going to have to have our innovators across the sciences, across medicine, across the humanities. We are going to have to really train people to think, to think fast and deep, to understand what is coming, to interact with new technologies. We're going to have to really um, engage people. And I cannot believe that we wouldn't be sort of celebrating the great success i mean i personally believe that everyone you know commonwealth games comes around and everyone says oh look how we punch above our weight in our in 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 sport mm. but i say check out if you look at the league tables of universities and university achievements across australia there are a lot of excellent university institutions that are having impacts across the world that we punch above our weight in intellectual uh, institutions and we should just be damn proud of it and talk about it rather than constantly you know complaining uh, well complaining or, or or telling ourselves we're not that great and all that no 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 there's a lot of great i mean no one thinks everything's perfect no one thinks that we found the perfect organizational structure and the perfect leadership and the perfect no of course not but we should start from a position that universities are vital that we are part of a therefore a vital organism you know we all know banks are vital, but universities are lifebloods for there. And you know what? What leadership or whatever that the United States still retains is mostly because they have some of the the very greatest institutions of higher education across in in the world, and they're mm. still producing innovation. You know, you, you 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 that is vital for any new economy. You need really great and innovative places of learning that's what you yeah. need and um i mean there's lots of other things you need too but i would say that so we all started we started the discussion about you know uh, buildings and we're now into a much deeper uh, place but i mean uh, buildings represent something but buildings they represent, represent strategy and values. They so the yeah. chow chat wing for me the idea of it and its creation is a gamble on interdisciplinary engaged student-led learning like my students are going to do loads of research. They're going to produce presentations and research. They're going to find out about objects. They're going to do it in a way that me projecting a PowerPoint slide of a uh, of a you know an artwork in uh, you know in Italy somewhere or whatever is not going to do. And mm. what I'm hoping for is that Chow Chat Wing will lead its own transformation, transferring some of the excitement of teaching and learning away from just people like me spouting on to students really engaging with each other with objects and with um, their teachers and their professors and that that to me is you know it, i've got to try and make that happen so have my colleagues across but it's it's really that's what that building represents to me and maybe mm. you know uh, you, you you may have to just you know uh, uh, sort of uh, 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 indulge me indulge me it, it, it's got too much concrete for your taste sure. but it really represents something important i think so. okay great um so unfortunately we'll yeah. have to go to our last question yeah, of course um but so one thing we always ask our guests um which you've sort of already mentioned is 
uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? And it can't be about where to study your PhD. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Perhaps something slightly more general. <laughs> yeah, that is tough because... Um, uh, Make it know. good. Come on. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, this better be, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, funnily enough, mm. I can't remember... Okay, I think it was my English teacher at school and who went on to uh, become a distinguished headmaster somewhere else. He once said to me, I said I wanted to be a journalist. And that was, I think I must have been a 16-year-old. He said, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Don't, and at that point it was, you know, press journalism. He said, you don't want to be thrown in the bin every night. You, or or have chips wrapped in you. If you want to write and if you want to find a subject you care about, and find a way you can write at greater length and at greater depth. And, you know, I suppose a long time later, I've never become a novelist or anything, but I am writing and I'm writing in a more fresh way. But I don't know. I think uh, I think advice like uh, don't fight yourself. In other <laughs> words, uh, you know, I think advice that you might be given by, you know, a random PE teacher who you always hated, but who <laughs> gave you, you know, um, which, you know, in other words, don't pretend to be other than you are i'm an enthusiastic person i talk too much but if i if i had tried to curtail that enthusiasm in order to fit into a you know a a, a perhaps because people think enthusiasts are just dumb they just think they they don't get it they're not very clever and that's why they're enthusiastic and you know to affect especially at cambridge you know to affect a certain sort of disaffected uh, intellectual critiqueness was a much more trendy strategy but because someone had said to me don't fight what you are and i knew that it would f- it would be to fight what i was to to pretend i was actually chilled and cool and relaxed and just above the fray sort of jaded and no, 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 yeah it's, it's it, it so so in a way trite advice can sometimes actually prove itself to be quite profound and i was once told by it wasn't actually a teacher i hated but it was in the context of a pe class which were always absolute hell for me uh, you know someone said i was trying to do something he said no don't fight yourself go find the thing that you can actually do and do it and um and i i feel that we are now molded by a lot of pressure to be something that we think is a good thing to be or um you know a, a, a lifestyle or a job, you know, or something that sounds glamorous, you know, or something that sounds like it will be something good to tell people you do at a party. And instead of thinking, what well, what am I actually good at? What could I, what are the, what are the skills I actually have? You know, um, and I think we sometimes think that we can make ourselves into anything. And to an extent, hard work can get you a long way. But I think from an early age, you sort of have a, a locus of things you know are you and a bunch of things that you know aren't you. Sometimes we feel ourselves being cajoled into going over to the group of things that aren't us because it looks cooler over there. But I think trying to reconcile yourself with, well, it might not be cooler over here, but it's kind of where I live and where I can actually thrive. I do, you know, if I if you're going back to the best piece of advice, it would I would want to... I mean, apart from, you know, go to a therapist so you can sort out what you are really like um, if you can, if you have the means. Um, my real, my advice is, yes, try to plot, 
try to have as much clarity or have a great friend who can bring that clarity to you or somebody who can sit down with you and say, okay, what are you really like? What, what, and what, what, what could you do that matches that? So yeah, great. very long-winded answer to your question. I oh, know that's, that's so fine. Um, yeah, so we probably uh, yeah. will wrap up there, but um, just want to say a massive thank you for coming on the show. I think it's been a wonderful interview. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, uh, yeah. Thank you, Harry. Uh, I love this initiative. I'm very, uh, I'm extremely uh, impressed by what you've all done here. I have to say that I'm probably the least uh, focused of all your interviewees, and so uh, there may be some edits that, that this will be needed. But you know, it's, I'm we'll very take it down to your... nine minutes. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> well. That's how long it should be, Harry. Anyway, thanks yeah. for your thanks for your time and for setting this up. And I really wish you all, uh, you know, the very best. And I hope to see you around. Thank you.